Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. If someone wants to make a baby and they can't do it on their own, donor conception is a popular option. That's when people use donated sperm, eggs, or embryos through self-insemination or a fertility treatment like IVF. When it comes to such an important procedure, you'd imagine there'd be dozens, if not hundreds, of regulations enacted around it, right? I mean, surely, clinics must be legally required to keep very good track of the inventory because if fertility doctors, I don't know, intentionally switched out the chosen donor sperm for their own, that would be like fertility fraud, right? Like a, a federal offense, right? It is not federally illegal in the States. It is not federally illegal for a doctor to switch out the chosen sperm or eggs for their own. That disgusting act is only illegal in 11 states. We have caught over 50 doctors doing this. Okay, but they must be required to at least, like, verify and pass along a donor's medical history to the kid that they helped conceive, right? We could have avoided this entire situation if y'all just gave me my medical history. Like, that's really it. But no, you made a problem, and now I have become a problem. That was Laura High, a comedian living in New York years after she found out that she was donor-conceived. She began having some health issues that were diagnosed as inherited. So she tracked down her donor to get her medical records. After doing an online DNA test, she found a bunch of her half-siblings, just a few of the near 50 people that he's likely fathered. And as she and some of those half-siblings developed more genetically inherited medical issues, despite repeated requests for medical records, he's refused which is a perfectly legal thing for him to do. Now, I want to be clear that the stories you're hearing today are the experiences of just two donor-conceived people. Many fertility clinics follow the guidelines they set up for themselves faithfully. Many times, the process of conception, the integration of informing the child from birth about their origins, and the relationship between the biological parent and child, if it happens, is honest, respectful, and quite beautiful. But Laura and our other guest, Eve Wiley, have been put through the fertility industry ringer. They're advocating for state and federal laws that would ensure that fertility fraud becomes illegal and that medical records are verified and available to the people made through this system. And they've both got some very good advice for those who choose to use donor conception services to make sure that everybody involved is protected. Now, it's at this point in the intro where I would usually give you some stats, like how many people are born via donor conception, but we don't know. There is no registry. But the National Library of Medicine estimates that up to 60,000 Americans are born this way, and some of them don't even find out they were donor conceived until they take an online DNA test. So, okay, let's travel back in time to the beginning of Laura's story. All right. Mm. So the story, I was conceived in 1987 in New York City. 
Um, but the story really starts three years before that. So hold on, wait a minute. I can do, I can do math. So 1984. So I got a theater degree, not a mathematics degree. So like, let's understand my skill set. So my parents started to try and conceive and both of my parents had uh, fertility issues. My mother's issues though, could be fixed. So um, she went to the doctor and was like, all right, we're ready. But she was ovulating on the holiday. She was ovulating on a holiday weekend. So the clinic was going to be closed. And they're like, so we'll just try next month. Now, if anyone has never been on fertility drugs, like you do not understand like how absolutely painful this stuff is. It's awful. It's horrible. And this was in the 80s. Like this is 80s fertility drugs. Like I don't even, I can't imagine. So this is, this is all like laced with cocaine. Like I don't know what the <laughs> hell they're doing at that point with these drugs. So my mom is in like so much pain. She just went through a full reconstruction. So she looks at the doctor and she's like, is there any bleeping way we can figure something out. And um, my parents were my doctor's very first patients. They were also the first patients of this clinic. So a lot of stuff was riding on this. So the doctor came up with this amazing magical plan. And he said, don't worry, I'll get the donor to drop off the sperm at a hotel concierge. You go pick it up and then go inseminate it with your husband. I mean, out of anything he could have figured out, like, oh, I don't know. You know what? We'll open up the clinic back for that one day. We can do this for one hour. I will come in on my off time. You are, like, we are going to make Laura black market sperm. I'm going to be a hotel baby. And I always think of that poor concierge. Like, did he have any idea what, like, the dude handed it? it was, was it just a brown paper bag? Did they tip him? Like, did he open it up? Did he have to check what it is? Like, I don't know what the rules were at that point. It? But I I, just, I don't know, but I feel very bad. It may, may have been a, this very nice young man. I don't know. But the donor dropped the sperm at the hotel concierge. My mom went and picked it up. And my mom tries so hard. Like, I love my mother to death. Like, my mom is just like, my mom is nothing but rainbows and sunshine. And she tries to sell the story so sweetly. So when she told it to me, she was like, Laura, I picked up the sperm. I kept it close to me to keep it warm. And then I whisked off to your father's office. And that's where you were made. But me, being the stand-up demon that I am, said, wait a minute, the office was closed, but dad couldn't take a day off? My dad, we had to work. So I was inseminated on my uh, father's desk, and I guess I should just be grateful he didn't get the intern to do it. I have this image of, because like, I love my dad, but my dad's a workaholic, and I just have like this image of him going like, okay, honey, go put your legs up, I've got this spreadsheet. Like, that's how I just imagine my dad. Um, so anyway, I was, I was conceived. That was my origin story. And then just to, just to put a a fun little side piece on my, I was made when parents were not allowed to pick donors. There wasn't like this catalog. There wasn't this like online brochure or anything like that. So, um, they basically, what they said that they did was they matched donors up to the dads as best they could between hair color, eye color, ethnicity. But the number one thing that, uh, the, this clinic matched before anything else was religion. I don't really think religion matters too much for guys off into a cup for cash, but that's just me. And I don't know why. I mean, I really want to understand what the difference is between like Baptist and Lutheran sperm. I mean, you know, with with the Catholic sperm, maybe there's more pageantry. Anyway, so they matched the donors up to the dads as best they could. And so my dad is Irish, Scottish and Catholic. Okay. So they, they apparently they do religion first. So first they had to find a Catholic donor that's like Irish and Scottish. My took the ancestry test. 
And my donor is 100% Ashkenazi Jewish. Now, I know for the folks at home who uh, can't see me, I look so classically Ashkenazi Jewish. Like, I love my Ashkenazi features. I look so Jewish that when I used to work in Times Square, I had um, people from the Hasidic community come up to me and start talking Yiddish to me. There were always, it was so, and it happened so many times. And then just to tie it full circle, which I feel like makes it extra special, the reason that the clinic was closed was because the holiday was the Jewish New Year. So I was conceived on the Jewish New Year. L'chaim. L'chaim. L'chaim to me. And my donor, we have learned, is a OBGYN, Orthodox Rabbi Moyle. Okay. And for anyone who is wondering, yes, I am lactose intolerant. <laughs> the mystery has been solved. So, okay. You get conceived. You get born. And you didn't find out that you were donor conceived until when? I was 14 years old when I was told. How did they decide to tell you then? What did they say? So they originally, when I, you know, born, started seeing my pediatrician, they immediately told my pediatrician, like, she's donor conceived. And my pediatrician, a shout out to Dr. Mary, if you're listening, I love you, you're wonderful, very ahead of her time. Because for the majority, don't, uh, donor conceived people in my age group, the doctors were telling the parents, don't ever tell them they're donor conceived, they never need to know. So the majority of people in my decade were never told, they found out by accident. So I'm a very rare case. And the fact that like my pediatrician was like advocating for my rights and my parents were always like, yeah, of course, we're going to tell her. Um, my pediatrician was like, um, my dad has to be the one to tell me because she was like, Laura probably is going to be insecure that her father might not love her as much because he she's not biologically his. So her dad needs to do that to just ensure that. And so my dad at 14 years old, I will never forget this conversation. We were driving home and he just sporadically asks me. Laura, do you know how babies are made? And I'm like, Dad, I'm 14. I've seen Skinamax. <laughs> For any of us who remember Skinamax, it's I don't know if it's still around, but like Cinemax, but Skinamax. It's Skinamax. Like, you know, you had I, you know, that soft jazz rustling through the curtains. It was a good time. And then my dad just looked at me and he was like, not for you, sweetheart. And then he he told me, and it was the most dad conversation because dads have their conversations in the car. That's where you learn the most important thing. That way you don't have to look them in the eyes. You don't have to look them in the eye and you fully control how long or how short the conversation is. So what did he say? So my uh, my dad, this was my dad's second marriage. So my dad's first marriage, he I have a sister who was adopted. Uh, from that first marriage. And he was like, do you know why your sister was adopted? And I always like had a story in my head. And I was like, well, I assume it was because of this. And he was like, no, it was because I struggled with fertility issues. And he was like, and you know that your mom and I struggled. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, do you know what donor conception is? And I'm like, yeah. And he was like, that's how you were made. Do you understand what that means? Did you understand what that meant? Yeah. And I remember just sitting in the car just going, is this why I don't look like, I remember just like, it was this feeling of, you know, when Neo sees the Matrix for the first time? Yeah. That's what it was like. I knew something was up my whole life because I do not look like my dad. I don't look like anyone on my dad's side. It was like I could smell it like a bloodhound. Like I was like, was I switched at birth? I look exactly like my mother. So it was always like, it just something didn't add up. So for me, it was like this form of validation that I was like, I am not crazy. F all y'all. 
it was actually very validating. I would say more of the aftermath and consequences has like sort of dripped throughout the years since then uh, as to actually what that means. But in that moment, I was just like, cool. This is something I can share that'll be fun at parties. So take me through the next era after this. Were you okay. like, I want to find out who my biological father is right away? What was that like? I mean, I think I was always a little interested in like, well, who is this guy? Who am I related to? But I didn't really start making moves until I was 19 in college because I kind of was always like, yeah, I'd love to know. But like, like, what can I do about it? And like, really? And then um, I had a friend actually ask me, they're like, well, aren't you worried about like medical problems? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And she was like, well, what if your donor has like a history of cancer and you don't know about that? And I was and then suddenly I was like, oh, I never thought of that. Oh my God, you're right. And because like my my family has got, uh, I have some relatives who have like a history of Parkinson's. There's some Alzheimer's. So it's like, yeah, no, that stuff. Should, and so like, I was aware that like that stuff is is a very real thing. Um, and so I was like, okay, how do I, how do I handle this? And I started just with the information that I had about my donor, um, which is like almost all false. I started just looking up people online to seeing if I could match it but nothing, I couldn't find anything. So I decided, what if I just call my parents and fertility doctor and see if he gives me the information? I'm going to call him Dr. John. He's Dr. John Doe today. Um, and I called Dr. John's office and I'm like, hi, I'm a patient of Dr. John's. May I please speak to him? And they were like, all right, what's your name? And I'm like, oh, I didn't think of that. That was my dumb 19 year old self. And so I say, tell him I'm Sarah's daughter and I need to speak with him. And I was sort of banking on the fact that because my parents were his first patient, he was going to remember. He picked up the phone in under, I mean, it was under five minutes. It could have been one minute. He was on the phone very fast. And I will never forget the tone of his voice, but he just went, hi. And I'm like, hi, um, my name is Laura. I'm Sarah's daughter. Do you know who I am? And he just went, yeah, I know who you are. And it was like, there was a weight and it was suddenly like the air just got thick. All the sound just went and it was suddenly like, I knew, oh, this is bigger than what I thought. Like there's, there's, there's stuff behind this. And I asked him, I was like, okay. It was like, look, I'm curious as to understanding. I'm like, I would love to know who my donor is. I would love to know what my medical history is. What is available to me? Um, You know, I, I would just love to know, like, does he have, you know, run the risk of cancers or anything? Cause I've had a funky medical history and I would really love to know. And he was like, well, you were made from an anonymous donor. So no matter what, even if I knew who he was, I could never give you that name. But you came from a clinic that was filled with um, medical students and doctors. And that, clinic has burned to the ground uh with all of your medical history and papers in it so even if i could give it to you i couldn't because it's all gone and even at 19 i was like this is both oh but he did tell me he was like but i know for a fact your donor was totally healthy you have nothing to worry about and i'm like interesting how that works you mm, okay i'm like i'm gonna file that away uh for give me another 12 years and i'll, I'll i'm gonna circle back yeah, I, I do wonder if the doctor ever listens to me like on TikTok and Instagram, just going like, oh, I should have just told her something. God damn it. It sucks when the evidence can talk. It sucks when the evidence can talk. I'm like, we could have avoided this entire situation if y'all just gave me my medical history. Like, that's really it. But no, you made a problem. And now I have become a problem. So 
now we we go years later, we take ancestry and it's like, I'm 26 now, 27. We find out I'm half Ashkenazi Jewish. Uh, and my mom takes it as well. She doesn't have a lick of Ashkenazi in her. So it is okay. So my donor is a hundred percent. Um, and I'm like, okay, I officially know hundred percent mazel to me. So we fast forward now a few more years and I get a hit on ancestry and it's from a woman. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to name her Cheryl. And she was like, how are we related? Like, because we're, we're like labeled as first cousins. And I'm like, well, I'm a firm donor, baby. And she just was like, oh my God. Again, I'm changing names. She's like, oh my God, you're Bob donated. Bob donated. It was her cousin, Bob, who is my, uh, my donor. And I learned that he has kids. So I had half siblings and I'm like, oh my God. And she has not spoken to him in years. So I was like, do you know of any kind of medical issues? And she's like, I'm really sorry, I don't. She was like, I remember as a kid, he really suffered all, very heavily from eczema. But she was like, I don't know anything about that side really that much. She was like, I'm, I'm very sorry. And I'm like, no problem, thank you, I appreciate it. And yeah, so it's like, okay, I have a name, I can look him up and I looked up his, his face and I could see my biological father's face for the first time. That was comedian Laura High. When we get back, we'll hear the rest of her story and get some heartfelt advice. There are Facebook groups with 30,000 members each where people buy sperm off of the internet. Please do not do this. This is done. And hear from one woman who challenged the laws on fertility fraud and one. DNA doesn't lie, people do. And we got a bill passed and it is now a sexual assault in Texas. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf, and here's a sampling of what you can expect to hear on Laura High's TikTok. That's why Dave took a DNA test before we got engaged. Like, I just played enough blackjack to know when to call, and that was just one of those moments. We're not taking the risk. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why I regret some of those decisions I made in college. This was just not one of the reasons I thought I'd have. I went to therapy to, like, deal with self-worth, not to deal with the fact that I may have had an uh-oh moment with a sibling. Oh, uh, now I'm thinking about it too much and I need a drink, which is how I got myself in that situation in the first place. Laura High is a comedian based in New York City, and she's one of two women we're hearing from today 
who are advocating for changes in laws to the fertility industry. Later, you'll meet Eve Wiley, whose sperm donor turned out to be her mother's fertility doctor. He intentionally swapped out his sperm with the ones her parents chose, which is illegal in just a handful of states, but not federally. It's called fertility fraud. But let's get back to Laura. When she posted a TikTok of herself dressed in a sperm costume at the U.S. Capitol building last year, people took notice. She was joining other advocates who were not wearing sperm costumes, advocating to make fertility fraud illegal federally. Here was the message they sent to the doctors, who they now know are their biological fathers. Hey, Dr. Wartman. Hey, Paul Brennan-Jones. Hey, Daddy Klein. Hey, Dr. Hornstein. Also known as Dr. Klein. Hey, Dr. Kim McMorris. It sucks when the evidence can talk. 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 It sucks. Laura is also pushing for laws to make medical records of donors both verified and made available to the children they help create. That's something that she and her half-siblings have been trying to get since developing inherited health conditions. So, okay, when we left off, Laura was telling me that she located the man who was her biological father. She's calling him Dr. Bob, because he happens to be a doctor. So she dropped off a letter at his office looking for medical records and heard nothing for years. Then she got contacted by a woman who told her that she was her half-sister, confirmed via an online DNA test. And she and some of the other half-siblings she found also suffers from genetically inherited medical disorders. And then I went online and started making a total goober of myself and started talking about my story and was like, I'm looking for my siblings because that's how it started. And I started then learning about how the infertility industry actually works and was horrified and was like, what the hell is this giant pile of laundry and mess? Um, and now I am the TikTok sperm girl, which is uh, my new identity. I plan to get a cake. Uh, I do have a sperm costume, although it is falling apart. Um, I might be getting a custom sperm suit made for me, actually, as we speak. I want that for you. Thank you. So all this time, Dr. Rabbi Moyle Bob, the sperm donor, is not responding or being helpful. No, and I kind of want to put a little bit more pressure on him, and I want him to understand the reality of the situation that's happening. Because it's like, dude, I understand like we were a transaction for you, but we are actual human beings. And it it was upsetting because it's like, he's a dad, he's a a rabbi, he's a doctor. Like, this is somebody who's like, I would have expected like some empathy. Compassion, yeah. Um, And the fact that we are getting none is very disappointing. And I basically wrote to him and I said, hey, this is who we have found so far. These are the medical issues we have found so far. All we want is our medical history. That is it. Because I was like, you have easily 50 kids out there. They are going to continue to find us and find you. You were very easy to locate for us. I will sign any piece of paper that says, I will never ask anything monetary of you. I just want medical history. And I'm like, the fact that we've not publicly named you is showing you how much we are trying to make this work. At some point, there's going to be a sibling coming in who's going to be very pissed off and will name you publicly. If you could say something to him right now, what would you say? Don't for a second sell yourself as the good guy in this situation. Don't for a second. You did not donate for any kind of good moral ethical reason. You donated because you wanted a paycheck. You wanted your beer money. But as a doctor, as a rabbi, and as a father now, I would have hoped that you would have understood 
that you created biological humans, sentient human beings. And by sheer luck, I have not named you. And I owe you nothing. And I will say very, very clearly, if one of my sisters ends up getting very sick, I will name you because I will get that medical history. I owe you nothing. So after being constantly stalemated and getting no response from the person who donated the sperm, how are you feeling about things now? I will say, like, the more you learn about how this industry works, the more terrifying it is. It's very angering. Being in a capitalistic society, that means that everything has a product. What is the product? Donor conception It is the babies. Um, We are products, we are transactions, and that's how we are treated. They only care about us until we are made and then go off. Like, we we don't care what happens to you. It is not federally illegal in the States. It is not federally legal for a doctor to switch out the chosen sperm or eggs for their own. That disgusting act is only illegal in 11 states. We have caught over 50 doctors doing this. And most of them remain in practice. Some of them are still in practice. So for people hearing your story who don't want to be part of this system, but they do want to have donors help them conceive, what would you tell them to keep in mind? If you are going to go outside the industry, and I and I say a thousand different warnings with this, make sure that you, as the recipient parents, get a family lawyer from your state. The donor also has to get a family lawyer from that state. Those lawyers need to drop the contracts and walk you through how to do this donor conception legally. You need to follow those steps to a T. Yes, this will be a lot of financial and emotional labor. But if you do not do this correctly, you are putting parental custody in jeopardy. Do and follow it to a T. And finding your donor, please do not get your donor off of the Facebook groups like so many of you do. There are Facebook groups with 30,000 members each where people buy sperm off of the Internet. Please do not do this. Do not do this. This is done. Stay away from serial donors as well. There are apps that are literally, it's like Tinder for sperm donors. Stay away from those. That's where serial donors go. Serial donors who literally do sperm tours around the world impregnating women around the world. Stay away from those guys. Don't touch them. They're icky. If you want to go outside the industry, find a friend. Find a very, very well-trusted friend. But... If you do go through the industry, only use a known donor. Use a donor who is open to contact from day one. That is your safest bet. And help us get HR 451 passed. HR 451 is us trying to get federally the fertility fraud law passed, which would make it illegal for a doctor to switch out the chosen donor DNA for their own. So let's get that passed. So all you got to do is call your local legislature and say, I want HR 451 passed. Please. Thank you so much. And now that I've traumatized you, back to the traffic. Laura, hi. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. Shortly after recording my conversation with Laura, Nevada became the 12th state to make fertility fraud illegal. It is now a Class B felony there, with 2 to 15 years in prison and up to a $10,000 fine. In Connecticut, fertility fraud is currently not illegal. Baby, baby, me. 
the man who Eve Wiley thought was her biological father, died when she was seven. When she was 16, she was snooping around in her mother's email, and she found out that the person she was calling dad her whole life wasn't biologically related to her. Thus began a lifetime of discovery, anger, purpose, and advocacy. But let's back up. What did all that new information feel like for 16-year-old Eve to take in? I was a little relieved because all of these, you know, scenarios that I would play out of why I was so different. Was I adopted? Was I the product of an affair? You know, why is it that my mom was pushing me into politics and, you know, literature and poetry? And it was because that's what the donor was interested in. Um, so there was a, a part of me that was relieved. And, and then there was also that naive part of me that was a little excited. I still had a dad. And so I, you know, I recognize as an adult, but, you know, it's way more complicated than that. And that was an oversimplification. But as a 16 year old girl, those were my feelings. I didn't really understand, you know, how complicated it, it really was when it came to that relationship of, you know, I, I never thought that, that my, my dad, my donor, I never thought that he wouldn't want to know me because in my mind, this was like a Disney princess story. So what happened next? I went and I confronted my mom. She started bawling. Um, I was like, it's okay, it's okay. And and she was, she had this huge green folder and she printed out every single email, every single message board, anything to basically show me that she was doing all this research to figure out who he was. And um, at the time we had to go get my medical records. And the rule was, is when you turn 18, you can submit those medical records. They'll cross check the uh, purchasing records at California Cryobank with the doctor. And then they'll initiate contact to get that updated medical information. So it took them about a year and they found donor 106 and I just had that beautiful fairy tale story and um, Steve became dad and we just developed this beautiful father-daughter relationship and um, when I decided to get married he officiated my wedding and um, I became close with my half siblings his uh, social children and so it was just you know everything was just awesome and um then i had my first son and he started presenting with these medical mysteries that we couldn't really figure out and i was getting the whole you know like you're a first time mom and then um you know they thought i was exaggerating symptoms and to make a long story short um we started working with this geneticist and after the first thing he said was like, we need raw data on your genetics. So do 23andMe plus health. And it came back that my son had celiac disease. I had no idea what celiac disease was. So they went through the whole thing of an autoimmune disorder, how it was hereditary, and I was the carrier for it. That was really bizarre to me because no one in my family that I was aware of had been reporting celiac symptoms or autoimmune system symptoms. So from that point, we get my son all figured out, everything's great. And I um, start looking at the DNA side of it, the relation side of it. And there are three potential half siblings. And so I contact them one by one. And the first one is from my area. And um, I'm trying to think of the nicest way. Say this, bless this sweet little heart. I just, I didn't think he really understood <laughs> the whole like, you know, how donor conception worked. And I kept telling him that, that, you know, Dr. McMorris was our mom's doctor, which is different. He wasn't the donor. I just thought he was confused and just probably not the sharpest tool in the, in the shed. And then the next one 
was one from Texas and he was 13 years older than me. And even though he had that red flag, you know, cognitive dissonance is an amazing thing. Um, I was just, you know, swatting away all the red flags because I just thought I, I knew it all. And then I got in touch with the third one. He wasn't on social media, so I had to get to him through LinkedIn and it was late one night. So I sent him a message and um, he's like, can I give you a call tomorrow? Maybe a little difficult to explain to my wife why I'm getting out of bed to call another woman. So I was like, yeah, that's totally fine. I just think I'm your half sister. And then my phone immediately rings and he's like, okay, you got my attention. And so we walk through this whole thing of, um, you know, here I am thinking that I'm dropping this bomb on him. He doesn't know he's donor conceived. And, you know, a lot of us have been in that position before. So I'm trying to be sensitive to this. And we look at the profile and we look at the Cinnamon Morgans on 23andMe. And it falls within the range where we really could be half sibling or um, first cousins. And so I was like, okay, so if I'm your first cousin, then one of your uncles is my biological father is your uncle Steve? And he said, no, my uncle is Kim McMorris. And my world stopped because Kim McMorris is my mom's fertility doctor. And, and that is the man my entire life, Hugh, and I'm from a small community. That, that was always the hero in my parents' stories that, you know, they couldn't get pregnant. They went to him and he helped them. And and I had my mom's medical records. I had the record where it said of my conception of donor 106. And so there was only one thing that this could be. And that was that Dr. McMorris switched his sperm and inseminated my mother without her knowledge or consent with his own. And I had developed this wonderful relationship with donor 106 that I've called, you know, dad. And he's still dad today. Um, but it definitely sent us on um, this crazy, crazy journey that I've been on for the last five years. My first compassionate reaction is white hot rage on behalf of you and your mother. When you told her, how did she respond? She was in shock. She she didn't believe it. She was like, he is such a wonderful person. He would never do this to me. And you know, there was a lot of work that we both had to do. And I see this a lot now, too, with people where this is their story, really processing the deception around the conception and separating that entirely to who I am as her daughter. Because there were a lot of times where she would say she felt like she couldn't validate that trauma, that she couldn't give space or hold space for that trauma because it also meant that she didn't love me or she would have wished that anything would have been different. And so there was so much work around opposite feelings about the same thing. You are allowed to, to hold space for the trauma that, and trigger alert here, um, that she was sexually assaulted. And, and that is really confusing, but you are also allowed to love me and wish that, um, that, that I was always your daughter and nothing else would change that. And so all of that work that we have done to separate those two things um, has been really helpful, but it was, it was really hard for her, for me, for dad, you know, for our family as a whole to really kind of work through all of the deception around my mom's conception, around my conception. So after you found out that your biological father was Dr. McMorris, what did you do? Did you contact him? I called attorneys because I wanted to make an informed decision. And um, I was utterly shocked that they said, you don't have a civil cause of action and you don't have a criminal cause of action. And even if we would attempt to go to the medical board, I don't even know if you could get a license because of a statute of limitations. 
That pissed me off so much that there is this clear violation and there is a man that is going to walk away with zero accountability. So what I did is I was like, all right, I'm going to give him a chance to do the right thing. And so my attorney said, when you write him, it needs to be in writing. Um, don't call him <laughs> in writing. And so that's why I, I confronted him um, over letters that eventually turned into emails. And um, he just lied. And I would poke a hole in that lie. And then he would tell another one. And every time I would uncover another lie, um, he would, you know, move the needle a little bit more. Can, may I ask, like, how, how can he, it's genetics. How does he lie? What, what, can you give me an example? Any lie, pick a lie. Well, and that's the thing is I'm like, you know, DNA doesn't lie, people do. And so, for example, so I told him, you know, took 23andMe, connected with the first cousin. Um, and he was like, well, it appears you may have inherited some of my genetics. And I'm like, Dr. McMorris, some of your genetics? <laughs> just sprinkle them in there, you know, because he was in the room, maybe it sloughed off him. You, just, just a sprinkle of my genetics. Um, at that point, I, I recognized that with this not being a crime, not having a civil criminal cause of action, and then him unwilling to take accountability, the only thing I felt like I could do was come forward because I needed my medical information. I didn't, I had no idea the scope of the problem, but what if my half siblings are out there and, and they have a child like mine? I have this, you know, the key to this, I have the secret that they need and I don't have any connection back home. I don't have any way of identifying who these people are, but I was also going to go change the law. And so that's why I put my little pink suit on. And I went to um, the Texas Capitol and talked to a lobbyist who taught me how this worked. And I went down there once a week for five months and met with as many legislators as I could. And we got a bill passed and it is now a sexual assault in Texas. After the break, if she could sit him down and make him listen, what would Eve say to Dr. McMorris? So how does karma taste? I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is what you'll get when you mess with us. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Eve Wiley thought her dad was her dad. After he died when she was seven years old, she found out that he wasn't her biological father. Her parents used donor sperm to have her. And her mom found the paperwork that said her father was donor number 106, Steve. So she contacted Steve, they became super close, and everything was awesome. Case closed. Except when Eve had her first son, he developed some medical issues that were inherited. So she did the online DNA test 23andMe plus health. Through that, she met relatives who revealed that her dad was not donor number 106. Her biological father was actually Dr. McMorris, her mother's fertility doctor. This is called fertility fraud, and in all but 12 states, it's not illegal for a doctor to do this. And there are no laws on the books against fertility fraud federally. Let's get back to our conversation. Why do you think he did it? You know, I've had a lot of feedback from people that have worked with him previously that um, he's a tightwad. So he probably wanted to save money. 
Um, but I also think for, you know, a lot of these doctors, there is a level of narcissism and this God complex of when God fails, they are God, they play God. And I think that that feeds a level of um, power um, that is intoxicating to a lot of these men. And then they become this hero for these people. And um, I think that that was something that he just didn't have strong enough boundaries to set and to separate. So I think it was all of those things. When was the last time that you tried to reach out to him personally? It would be the last letter that I sent. So that would have been in 2018. Um, he does have regular contact with some of my siblings. Um, I believe my nickname is Evil Eve. So <laughs> I know. I mean, <laughs> your name being Eve in this context <laughs> is also kind of amazing. It's kind of funny, right? So I get, you know, some regular feedback from from them. I think he's softened a little bit, but I don't think that that side of the family is too happy with me, which I'm fine with because I feel, you know, it was a necessary evil. And I can now live this genuine and authentic life through the transparency. And I think at this point, if they were to ever, um, you know, approach me with any type of, you know, connection or want a relationship, it is within full transparency and there's no hiding and there's no secret. So I would know that it would be genuine. In a lifetime, we search for meaning and purpose. And your story is so, it's so clear that this is one of your lifetime's purposes to seek the truth, to listen to your own intuition, which had been going off the whole time, and to do something about it. When you hear me say that, what goes through your heart? I mean, I think you're spot on. Narrative therapy has been such a important part of my healing. You know, especially when it comes to something like this, I, I didn't decide, no one decides how they're born. I didn't decide to be lied to. I had no control over any of that, but I have control over this. I have control how I can respond to the situation. I have control of, am I going to be the victim or am I going to be the victor? There is a purpose in the pain. I just have to find it. And being able to take control back of my life was so empowering for me. And then to see, you know, all of the other people supporting me along the way and, and on my journey. Um, I think that that is how I've really been able to heal from this this trauma is really figuring out what what is the purpose of my pain and doing something with it and taking control of the situation. For people who are listening to you right now and they are in the process of or considering using donor services to conceive a child, is there anything that they can do so that they won't be in the situation that you and your family were in? The easy button would be go to a female doctor <laughs> and then I'll be like the surefire way. <laughs> that's great advice. Yeah. So that's rule number one. But our nail salons are more regulated than the fertility industry. And that when you see things that are from or like the American Society of Reproductive Medicine or, um, you know, any of those professional organizations, those are guidelines. Those are not mandated by um, the government. And so this entire industry is very unregulated. It is the wild, wild west. It is essentially self-regulated. The FDA is tasked with regulating it. But they stop regulating basically at the embryologist level. So once your reproductive material leaves an embryologist and goes into your actual doctor, 
if they want to use a pencil to document things, they totally can. But asking questions like, does your clinic use any type of technology to make sure that my reproductive material is going to me and not to someone else? There are programs like Tomorrow, but with all the vowels out. So like T-M-R-W. Um, that is a tracking, it's digitalized, great. Um, You know that if there is an in-house embryologist, that they are going to um, be regulated more. So that's always great to ask. Ask as many questions as you can about who is handling the reproductive material. Is it a third party that is storing it? And you're just really trying to mitigate, you want less hands on it. So if it's a third party that is storing it, that's just one more transportation, one more place for things to go wrong. Because where I think that fertility fraud, I think doctors would be, I mean, they were stupid to do this anyway, but now with commercial DNA testing, now that they can get caught, um, I hope that the most recent case I'm aware of is 2012. And I hope that stays the way. Um, But now we're really looking at bigger things like fertility negligence. And that's just because reproductive material is not being handled the way that it should. And so I think that now for your listeners, you know, you're mitigating that and trying to minimize negligence and going to a female doctor. How many people do you know of did he make? Right now, our number is at 14. Three of those are his social children. Um, I know that there are way, way more than that. But right now, we're at a 100-mile radius of women that were driving to him in rural America. And um, our, I think our age gap is between, I think it's 13 or 15 years between the youngest and the oldest. I have spoken to uh, people that have worked in his office at the time, and he was seeing between 50 and 70 patients a day. So you let that sink in. I mean, that is every few minutes he is in and out. So um, I don't know if we will ever find them. You know, it's interesting that community, uh, most people have supported him, which is that rape culture, um, victim blaming, victim shaming, um, you know, all the marginalizations that, you know, people in our communities get like um, from the DCP or adoptees or you know, NPEs, MPEs, those marginalizations of, but you wouldn't be here if it weren't for him, or at least you have doctor genes. Um, you know, you have a duty to honor your mother and your father. Um, you know, your mom's your mom, your dad's your dad, all those marginalizations, they really focus on that toxic positivity versus the deception around the consumption. If you could say anything to him alone in a room, and he had to hear you, and he couldn't speak back, what would you say? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> um, I think that I would say, um, what is, I would actually do more of a question. Um, so how does karma taste? That's kind of what I think I would say to him. You know, now that I am literally his karma, um, he did this to himself. I'd probably ask him questions again about, you know, why did you do this? And how many times did you do it? I think I'd probably want to be understanding a little bit more of the psychology behind it. Um, But I think that there is a bit of that self-protective mechanism that I have as a person to not want to open myself up to that. But that goes back to trust, right? Because I don't trust him. Um, So I don't even know if I would want to open myself to him because of that lack of trust. Right. You wouldn't even necessarily be able to believe anything that he says anyway. 
pathological liar. I think when anyone is done wrong, you, you seek justice, whatever that means, or even if it even exists, you seek some peace, some resolution maybe is a better word. What is resolution for you? Resolution for me with him would be accountability. And, you know, I think about how different this could have gone. If he would have said in those letters, I did this, I am so sorry. Um, This was the thinking at the time, it was wrong. What can I do to make it right? We wouldn't be talking here today. I'm a reasonable person. I would have been like, tell me who everybody else is. Let's figure this out. Let's do the right thing. And I even offered to him, I'm like, when I was working on legislation, come with me and do this. Like, we can do this together. We can talk about how this was wrong and we're rising above and look what we're doing to make it right. And he said, no, obviously. Um, But for me, that would just be accountability. I was wrong and I'm sorry. That's it. Well, Eve Wiley, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me on. We'll have links so you can connect with Eve and Laura at ctpublic.org slash audacious. You'll also find a link there to the nonprofit Donor Conceived Community. They provide peer support, education, and resources for people navigating donor conception and DNA discoveries. Khalil Rahman conceived of this episode and produced it with help from Jessica Severin D. Martinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Special thanks to our interns, Carol Chen and Stacey Addo. If you liked this episode, scroll back through our podcast feed. We did one a while back about the lengths people go to to have or help people have children, including a conversation with a woman who was a three-time surrogate and another woman who donated her eggs five times. And for good measure, we also have our Gracie Award-winning episode about what it's like to wholeheartedly regret becoming a parent. Still our most listened to show of all time by far. Just search Audacious with Kion Wolf wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review and then go ahead and share this episode. I'd love to hear your reactions. Get in touch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, or you can send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.